John chapter 12 is our passage once again. John chapter 12. I think I'm going to make it out of John chapter 12, verse 31b today. I've been camping out there for quite some time. It's a monumental statement by our Lord. I do want to remind you that in verse 23 of John 12, after these Gentiles came to see, wanted they want, sir, we want to see Jesus, two of the disciples tell Jesus, Jesus doesn't say, call him over here, or hey, Gentiles, here's what I think about your presence. He makes these staggering uh, uh, announcements. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He says that right after these Gentiles come. Then notice what he says in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? So he's contemplating things that are causing grief uh, or agonizing or troubling of his soul, his human soul, according to his human nature. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. The question itself, save me from this hour, implies something, right? Something's going to happen to him, and he knows it, okay? So this is why he's having this inward turmoil of soul, according to his human nature. He's He's conquering. He's considering the ministry that's laid before him. He knows what's coming upon him, and he asks this question, Father, save me should I, from this hour. Should I say that? Then watch what he does. He takes a detour away from doubt and, and going into sin. He's not sinning. It's just a human response to impending difficulties that he knew were coming upon him. Because he knew the Old Testament. He knew not only his identity as the incarnate son of God, he knew his vocation or calling. He lived to die. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he knew this was coming. Various places in his earthly ministry, he told the disciples, here's what's going to happen, and it's all according to the scriptures. We're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. So he says, I shouldn't say, Father, save me from this hour, because for this purpose I came to this hour, Father, glorify your name. Now, if we jump down to verse 31, we hear these words of our Lord. Now is the judgment of this world. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. Now the ruler of this world, excuse me, will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So he brings up his death. That's what he was thinking about. That's the trouble that comes, trouble of soul that comes to him. And he says, basically, three, if I'm crucified, if I'm lifted up from the earth, if I'm crucified, if I become a curse, if I die, this death that's coming upon me, and I will, there's going to be three effects. The first is the judgment of the world. The second is the ruler of this world will be cast out. The third is the God-man will draw all kinds of people, Jews and Greeks, to himself. So this is how I've read it. Our Lord is pronouncing that three effects come about caused by his death. So he has a a cause-effect kind of relationship going on here. I have been concentrating on these words. The ruler of this world will be cast out. I've tried to do four things. We're at the fourth thing I've tried to do. Uh, First, I tried to prove that our Lord 
means the devil by the ruler of this world. Second, I have explained what it means that the devil is ruler of this world. Third, I explained what the casting out of the devil means. And fourth, today, I want to explain how all of this is related to our Lord's death, because this is exactly what he does here. By virtue of the fact that I'm going to be crucified, the ruler of this world will be cast out. So what is the relationship between the death of Christ, which seems not to be a very victorious thing, right? It's like, what? He's dying? You remember what the disciples said after he died and before he was raised from the dead? I'm going fishing. That's, that's in the Gospel of John. We're going to get there some decade. You're going fishing? How many times did he tell you he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to be buried, and on the third day he's going to be raised? He dies, and you can't even wait for his own prophecy to come true? You're going to go fishing? You're going to put your tail between your legs and be a defeatist? Didn't you get this divine irony that he pronounced on the one hand? I'm going to suffer unto death. On the other hand, no one takes my life from me. I give it up, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I received from my Father. So all that's going on if we're good Gospel of John readers and allowing other portions of Scripture to come and help us understand what Jesus means by these words. You remember several weeks ago I said, some, one of the commentators um, I think it was this John Brown guy that I quoted last week. By the way, last week's sermon was built around that quote that everyone really liked. Remember, this far and no farther or whatever. Um, He's the one that said, look, there's no way the Lord intended his immediate audience to understand everything he meant by these words. However, we have the rest of Scripture to help interpret what is going on here. So I've sought to show you that by the words, the ruler of this world, our Lord means Satan or the devil. Some of you know, maybe some of you don't, that Satan is a created being, an angelic spirit who sinned along with other angels. Those are called demons. um, Not long after their creation, really fast it appears from a few uh, portions of the Old Testament. He is, uh, we could call the, the diabolical enemy of God and God's people, Uh, And this language, ruler of this world, remember how Paul uses God of this world, ruler of this world, our Lord uses this language in John 14.30, and it's important to remember what he says there. This is right prior to his death. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Okay, so our Lord knew... He had already been tempted by the devil, Luke 4, Matthew 4. He's going to be tempted even more as he approaches the crucifixion, the cross itself. And here he tells us, the ruler of this world is coming. I think he means by that, he's aiming at me. However, he has nothing in me. He's not going to win. Our Lord knew the devil was going to attack him somehow in an attempt to derail him from his mission. This is nothing new for the devil. The devil hates creatures created in the image of God, and he hated Adam and Eve, and he, he won. He beat Adam and Eve, didn't he? 
He deceived them into sinning against God. What do you think he's going to try to do to the, to, to the last Adam? That's what Paul calls Jesus. He's going to try to deceive him into sinning against God. But he's, Jesus says, he's got nothing in me. Got nothing on me. Got nothing in me. He's not going to win. He's got no claims on me. I will not do his will. I will not sin. I have come to do the will of my father for this hour, the hour of my death. I have come. That's what he's saying here. Remember the first time we see Satan's in the garden using this serpent as a tool to deceive? And there's a tree there, and he gets our first parents to sin in relation to this tree that had a command, a prohibition from God connected to it. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. There's a connection there, by the way. So it is true, it's, he's talking about Satan, the rule of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the powers of the air, Paul calls him in Ephesians 2. Somehow, some way, this ruler's ability to cause weird things to happen on the earth is going to be altered and ultimately vanquished by virtue of this death of the Son of God incarnate. Surely the words of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent, come into play in this, this whole thing. I, I think the Lord had those words in mind. The second thing I sought to prove in the past uh, is what does it mean that the devil is ruler of this world? So the first thing I said, well, what does it not mean? Or what, what, what is it? What, what it cannot mean? It can't mean that he's like sovereign. He's God. It has to mean whatever rule he has, it's subordinate ultimately to God's, and it's limited. What it does mean is that the prince of this world has a, this is a quote, a kind, a degree, and an extent of authority over the present evil world. The power the devil now has, he did not have before the fall into sin by our first parents. It's weird, but it is the judgment of God that in one sense the devil gained authority on the earth by virtue of the sin of our first parents. And you'll see why in a minute. The power he now has is a part of the Penal arrangements of the divine government. There's a technical word, penal. It means penalty. Okay, so a penal arrangement is a prescription of punishment for offenders. And if you read the whole Bible, you have to conclude part of the penalty of man's sin is subjection to the wiles of the wicked one. Man chose to follow the advice and to submit to the government of Satan, and as the appropriate punishment of this foul treason, God gave man over in a great measure into the hand of this mighty and terrible one, allowing Satan to uh, practice and prosper, in quotes, so as strongly to bring about the folly as well as the wickedness of man's choice and conduct. That was a quote from somebody else. You see what he's saying? The activity of the devil on the earth, this side of the first sin, is a part of divine judgment. You want to give yourself to the devil? Okay, here you go. 
to show the folly of subjecting ourselves to the devil's will instead of God's will. So the devil is, in this sense, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience as part of man's punishment for the first sin and all sin since. So then we went to the third issue. It's a lot briefer. What does the casting out of the devil mean? Remember I said, what it ain't last week, and then what it is. So here's what I said that it is, what it does mean. Satan's cruel tinkering with the souls and sometimes bodies. Satan's cruel tinkering with the souls and sometimes bodies of men will be vanquished or thoroughly defeated. However, this defeat... This vanquishing will be a progressive one over a long period of time, finding its foundation in the death of Christ and its final phase on the last day judgment. We won't see the full effect of this vanquishing until the last day. The devil's greatest work, his most far-reaching work on the earth, happened a long time ago. He got our first parents to sin And death came to all as a result. But God, ironically, through the death of our Lord, turns the tables on the devil. I've used a phrase before, redemptive reversals. It's pretty cool, huh? That sounds like I'm smart. I borrowed it from a smart guy, okay? Redemptive reversals. What does that mean? It's a a book that has all these, each chapter is on redemptive reversals. Uh, over and over, these redemptive reversals, that is, God seeking to redeem sinners, reverses the effects of sin in an ironic kind of a way. You know, like the first sin, he got to the man through the woman. Most of us, if we were God, we'd just say, squish, start over. God does this weird thing through a woman is going to come a man without a man who's going to destroy the works of the devil. A suffering vanquisher. This is why the cross is is, is foolishness to some. It's like, this looks so weak and pitiful. Look at his hapless victim up there on the cross. What is that? Well, you, you know, like movies about Jesus on the cross... I don't recommend them at all. You know why? You know, people said, I went to the movie and half the people were crying. Did they believe, by virtue of watching that movie, that divine wrath was being poured out on the Son of God in the place of others and he was vanquishing the devil while dying? No, because you can't see that. We have to be told that, right? And we're not told that on movies, we're told that in Scripture. So here we have the weakness of death, a weak one, dying it looks like, you know. What's going on here? This is one of those redemptive reversals. God turns the table on the devil. He's the God of this world. God sends the Son of God into this world, the devil's turf, to suffer temptations by the devil and never sin. The last Adam 
doesn't act like the first Adam, does he? The last Adam derails death for us, kills death for us, and thus dethrones the devil of death. Did you know that the devil has the power of death? We're going to look at that text, maybe, later. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, a weird text. To deliver those who through fear of death were held basically by the devil in bondage to the fear of death. He had the power of death. What in the world does that mean? He's God? No. But we'll deal with that when we get there. So here's the question for today. How is the casting out of the devil related to our Lord's death? Because that's, that's exactly what our Lord's saying here. If I be lifted up, or we could put it this way. The crucifixion is going to cause the casting out of the devil. My death on the cross is going to cause the casting out of the devil. I have said this before. There's a cause and effect relationship here. The ruler of this world will be cast out in relation to the Son of God incarnate being lifted up from the earth. So there is this cause-effect relationship between the death of Christ and the demolition of the devil. The death of Christ is the demolition of the devil. Sounds odd. It's almost like he's, he lost, though. He died. How can we view Christ's death not as a losing battle, but as a winning battle? That's another question. I hope that gets answered by me in this sermon later. Uh, the demolition of the devil or his being cast out is an effect caused by our Lord's death on a cross. Or we could put it this way, because of our Lord's death by crucifixion, Satan's cruel tinkering with the souls and sometimes bodies of men will be vanquished and thoroughly defeated. Something I already said. By the way, notice how I, I said this. His cruel tinkering with the souls and sometimes bodies if you think real hard, you can think of times when Satan was given some slack on his chain to go out and deal dastardly things toward the bodies of people as well. She's been under Satan's grip or Satan's power forever. How long? The one woman and then, what is it, Job and his family as well. There's others probably too. This much seems to be clear. That by virtue of his death, this cruel tinkering with souls and body will be vanquished, will be victoriously conquered, or thoroughly defeated at some point. But now I'm asking the question of how. Okay, so that is one thing. Well, it's through the death of Christ that Satan is vanquished, ultimately. How... You know, the, the mechanics of it, that's another question. How is it that by death, Jesus wins? Sounds to be, what's the jumbo shrimp thing? Ox. Yeah, that, that thing, that technical term for jumbo shrimp. Like, is it jumbo or is it shrimp? Is it big or small? I say, well, it's both. Is it death? which seems to be like loss, 
Or is it gain? Life? Or can it be somehow, some way, both? To answer this question of how is it that by death Jesus wins, I'm going to offer a brief catechism. I, I wrote this catechism myself. Okay? So it's to help. It was, you know it was to help? Not you first. Me. I wrote this for, to help me think through this, and I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to preach my own catechism to my own people, and hopefully they'll understand the, quest, the answer to the question, how does the death of Christ cause the ultimate vanquishing of the devils subjecting us to his efforts in an ill way on this earth? But before offering the catechism, I need, to list, uh, I need to lean on somebody, and since the John Brown quote was so uh, well-liked last week, I'll give you another John Brown quote that I, sometimes reading this guy, he's a Scottish Presbyterian from the 19th century, it's like I'm yelling out loud, people need to hear this, so you're going to hear it, here's what it is. It is now time that we turn our attention to the question, how is this casting out of the prince of this world the result of our Lord's, now listen to these technical terms, I'm going to define them. Penal, the result of his penal, vicarious, expiatory death. I'll define those terms. His being lifted up from the earth. Penal, vicarious, expiatory. My gut tells me at least half of you have heard those terms before, and others... Maybe you haven't heard the terms themselves, but once I define them, you're going to go, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I just didn't know we stuck it all into this one word. So by penal, penal refers to the fact that our Lord suffered death as a penalty. Now, one question should come up. A penalty for what? Sin? Yet without Sin, says the Bible in our confession. If it's a penalty for sin and he didn't sin, what is he doing dying? We'll get there. It's penal and vicarious. You've heard that, the vicarious atonement of Christ, if you've heard R.C. Sproul. Vicarious refers to the fact that our Lord suffered death, or penal and vicarious, refers to the fact that our Lord suffered death as a penalty in the place of others. You get the dictionary out, look up vicarious, you'll see some one person acting on behalf of either one other person or a bunch of other persons. It's a vicarious act. The entire incarnation was vicarious. He assumed our nature to assume our duties, to assume our liabilities in order to bring us to God. So it's penal, it's vicarious, but it's also an expiatory death, which refers to the fact that our Lord's penal, vicarious death takes away from others the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin. So to expiate means, means to remove something from one person, and you know what happens, to put it on the head of another. 
He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So those are, those are packed words. Penal, vicarious. Um, what was the last one? It's a good one. Expiatory, thank you. We're gonna, I'm going to use those because I think it helps answer the question of the mechanics. If the cause, if the effect is the casting out of the prince, the ruler of this world, and the cause is the death of Christ, how does the death of Christ cause the vanquishing of the devil? That it does seems to be clear. The seed of the woman shall smash, shall crush the head of the serpent. He is a skull crushing, he is the skull crushing seed of the woman. The son of The Son of God was manifested in order to destroy the works of the devil. That seems very clear. It's the how question. Penal, vicarious, expiatory. Keep those three terms in mind. Our Lord's death is penal. It's the divinely prescribed penalty for sin. Redemptive reversal, irony. The sinless Son of God dies. I, I thought if we don't sin, we don't die. We can't be dying for his own sin, right? He must be assuming guilt. Guilt is the just liability to punishment. And the punishment threatened was death in at least three senses. But his death was not only penal, it was vic- vicarious. That is, it's in the place of others and for their benefit He is a wrath-bearing substitute, right? That's another synonym for vicarious. But third, it's an expiatory death. Remember this, in that it is the the mechanism designed by God to deal once and for all with our guilt and sin. And here is a big one. The consequences arriving or coming to us from our guilt and sin, which includes... Subjection to the activity of the devil. So here's my catechism. Ten questions. I think it's ten. Uh, my ten question catechism on the casting out of the ruler of this world. So question one. Is the devil's activity in this world connected to the divine curse? The answer is yes. Question two. This is typical of good catechisms. How is the devil's activity in this world connected to the divine curse? See the difference? It's one thing to say that it is. It's another thing to ask and answer the question, well, how is it connected to the divine curse? I'm going to lean on our friend John Brown again. Listen to him. It captures the answer, I think, very well. Subjection to the influence of the devil is one of the penal evils resulting from man's violation of the divine law. It is a part of the execution of the curse. It's a way God gives us over to our folly. Part of the penalty for sin is subjection to the devil's influence. Question three, why did God execute the divine curse in the form of subjection to the influence of the devil. Here's John Brown again. Man chose to obey the devil rather than God. 
And the appropriate punishment of this sin was to deliver him into the hand of him whom he had chosen as his master. You don't dears, you want you want to do the devil's will? All right. Question four What is the cause of this prescribed punishment we call death and subjection to the devil's dastardly deeds? What is the cause of the prescribed divine punishment we call death and subjection to the devil's dastardly deeds? Here's the answer. Guilt brought on by sin. So I made a distinction there between guilt and that which brings guilt. Guilt is the just liability to divine punishment in this case, okay? What is the cause of guilt? Sin. The transgression of the law of God. When you sin, you become guilty. You become justly liable to divine punishment. So what is the cause of the prescribed punishment we call death and subjection to the devil's dastardly deeds? The cause is guilt brought on by sin. Question five. How can the cause of these penal inflictions, that is, death and subjection to the devil, be conquered or be overturned? There's a good question. The answer is this. The cause of these penal inflictions, guilt brought on by sin, can only be conquered or overturned by being removed. What is the cause of these penal inflictions, that is, death and the subjection to the devil? The cause of it is the divine threat and the human transgression of the law of God and the guilt that comes by virtue of sin. So how can these penal inflictions, these legal punishments by God, be removed? Well, the thing that caused them needs to be removed or dealt with somehow. Has God provided a way for guilt brought on by sin to be removed? If the answer is no, see ya. Let's just go eat and do whatever we want later on. Has God provided a way for guilt brought on by sin to be removed? The answer is yes, but I need to qualify it. Yes, but in only one way. Like there's not more than one way to God. There's not more than one way to get your guilt brought on by sin removed, not counted against you. There's only one way. And here is question seven. What is the one way provided by God for guilt brought on by sin to be removed from us? And the answer is there's only one right answer. There's not like several right answers. There's not two or three. God has to provide that answer for us. It's why we have the Bible. We have a Bible because God, sin is, and God has a plan of redemption. What is the one way provided by God for guilt brought on by sin to be removed from us? The answer is, another technical word, the satisfaction of Christ. Some of you have heard that before. 
The satisfaction of Christ. Of course, this is a catechism, so the next question is, what in the world does the satisfaction of Christ refer to, right? Question eight, what is the satisfaction of Christ? Here's the answer. Do, we, do I need to slow down, take a breath? You know, breathe. And we're not going to stand up and stretch or anything. What is the satisfaction of Christ? The answer is, the work of the incarnate Son of God in dealing with the justice of God and its rightful holy claims upon us. What is this satisfaction of Christ? It's the work of the incarnate Son of God in dealing with the justice of God and its rightful holy claims upon us. So the next question, question nine, is how does the incarnate Son of God Deal with the justice of God and its rightful, holy claims upon us. Right? If there's only one way to get the guilt guilt and sin removed, and therefore death won't have its condemnatory sting anymore, and we won't be under the subjection of the devil and be duped by him and lose against him, if there's only one way for that to happen, and it's the satisfaction of Christ... The next question is then, how does this work of the incarnate Son of God provide a satisfaction? And the answer is, in two ways. <laughs> I love saying things like that. Because now you're going, well, tell us what the two ways are. Slow down. It's my catechism. In two ways. So what's the next question? What are the two ways? Genius there. In what two ways does the incarnate Son of God deal with the justice of God and its rightful holy claims upon us? No, we're teasing out this satisfaction thing because I said there's only one way to get it out from under all the big trouble that we're in. And it is this thing called the satisfaction of Christ. What is the satisfaction of Christ? It's the work of Christ in dealing with the justice of God in relation to the presence of guilt and sin in others, not in himself. How does he do that? In two ways. In what two ways does the incarnate Son of God deal with the justice of God and its rightful holy claims upon us? Let me answer using the catechism called Milk for Little Ones. Yeah. That little catechism that's on the back table has the answer to that question. How uh, the satisfaction of Christ is in two ways dealing with the justice of God in relation to our guilt and sin. So in what two ways does the incarnate Son of God deal with our problem? Here's the answer. He kept the whole law that they could not keep and suffered the punishment their sins deserved. You've heard that before. Some of you taught your children that a long time ago. I know we did. He kept the whole law, so he got this this twofold satisfaction. He kept the whole law that they could not keep, but are required to, on the one hand. On the other hand, he suffered the punishment their sins deserved. So he kept the law, and he suffered the penalty for the law's violation. His life reflected perfect obedience to the law. His death was also perfect obedience to the execution of the penal threats of the law. You ever, do you view his death as obedience? You better, if you don't after today, I failed you. 
I'm going to prove to you. His death is part of his obedience. And you know what obedience would have got the first Adam? He would have squished the serpent's head. But he sinned. The reward of obedience would have been victory over the devil, over the serpent. But Adam sinned, so he never got that reward. He didn't keep the house of God, the Garden of Eden, uh, um, didn't keep it. He let an intruder come in. A creature came in, deceived them into obeying a creature's dastardly, devilish will instead of the will of the good creator God. So our Lord's death by crucifixion should not be viewed as him becoming a hapless victim, a wholly passive subject who had bad things done to him utterly out of his control. But here's a question. Was he a victim in any sense? If we take victim to mean a person harmed, injured, or killed as a result of a crime, other people are committing crimes, I think we can say that in one sense our Lord was a victim, not a hapless, utterly passive victim going, whoa, I didn't have no idea what's going on to me. Why are you people doing this to me? Him you have taken by lawless hands have crucified and put to death. That's Peter indicting fellow Jews in Acts chapter 2. You did this. You committed these crimes. But our Lord was not a wholly passive victim to circumstances beyond his control. He was a willing victim, a voluntary, sacrificial lamb who gave himself for our sins. Right? You don't read the Gospels and then you hear Jesus saying, no thanks. Father, no thanks. This is, this is too much. I can't handle this. I don't even have the power and authority to do this. Recall these words. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd has his life taken from him for the sheep. Gives his life for the sheep. This is an active, voluntary giving. John 10, 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 17 and 18, I lay down my life that I may take it again. Ooh. So good readers of John, when you read John 12 and you're trying to think through the mechanics of the cause and effect, the casting out of the devil by virtue of the crucifixion, you remember back to these words, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Weird. Nobody else in the history of the world can say, nobody can take my life from me. But I can give it up voluntarily, and I'll I'll get it again. You can say that all you want, but people are going to think... You got some loose marbles up there. By the way, they thought that of our Lord. Remember what the angel told the women? He's not here. He is risen. Elsewhere, our Lord said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom? 
What does that refer to? His life is payment for the sake of many. He's making a payment to divine justice. It's a satisfaction of divine justice. So so throughout the life, and even at the cross of our Lord, we have him giving himself for us and for our salvation. Remember these words? Tell me ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? The answer is no. Friends through fear his cause disowning. Peter, other disciples as well. Foes insulting his distress. These are some of the some of the passion, some of the sufferings of our Lord before the cross. Many hands were raised to wound him, son of God. Save yourself off that cross, or whatever the exact words were. None would interpose to save. That stuff's all bad, right? You crucified the Lord of glory. The religious leaders of the ancient Jews, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.8. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave capital J, or for you the other way, capital J. Why is it capitalized? The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that God inflicted upon the incarnate son, suffering unto death according to his human nature. The sinless son of God, dying on behalf of sinners, assuming their guilt. This is a vicarious death. It's also penal. This is a legal act of God, considering the fact that the Son of God assumed the guilt of others. It's it's a, a just action. It's an action on behalf of others, and it's the removal, expiatory, of their guilt from them and placed upon the Son of God. You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great now or here may view its nature rightly. Here, its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed son of man and son of God. What a wonderful hymn. The stroke that justice gave was a penal execution of divine justice upon the Son of God incarnate who assumed our place, vicarious, incarnation, sufferings and death, and assumed our guilt, an expiatory death. The willing reception of this penal execution is itself obedience to the law of God. Jesus obeys the law unto death, unto the death of death. Here's John 12, 27 again. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. He experienced pains of soul, but he never sinned in the midst of these frightful, soulish troubles. Do we have all the records in the scriptures of the invisible temptations of 
of the devil upon the soul of our Lord? I don't think we do. He just says weird things sometimes. Now my soul is troubled. The, 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 the prince of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. Those are odd statements. Like, what do you mean by that? You think if you read the whole Bible, you got... He doesn't, he wants to derail the last Adam. Our Savior, though, experienced this, these pains of soul, but never sinned in the midst of these frightful, soulish troubles. The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Not the sword in his side, not even the horrific nature of death by virtue of crucifixion. That wasn't the deepest stroke. The Lord isn't saying, now my soul is troubled. I have to die by crucifixion. You know that throughout the history of the church, others have died by by crucifixion? What did Jesus say while he was dying by virtue of crucifixion, an act of man? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He didn't say, man, this is the worst thing. The deepest stroke that pierced him was not the stroke that men pierced him with. It was the penal infliction of the carrying out of the verdict against sin, the threat of death according to his human nature. Our Lord makes the announcement about his death affecting the casting out of the ruler of this world. After the death and resurrection of our Lord, Paul says... This is why I read 1 Corinthians. Okay, so now we're looking at the death of our Lord. We're asking the question, how does the death affect ultimately the demolition, the vanquishing of the devil? Listen to Paul. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting Oh, Hades, where is your victory? Remember the sermon in Acts 2 again where Peter goes back and borrows from Psalm 16? He says David was speaking about the Christ and his resurrection. That the Lord would not allow his servant to undergo decay. He's going to beat this thing. And you say, well, why, why did he die on Friday and why was he raised on Sunday? Why didn't he just die on Friday and then... Raised real fast. Some people, and I kind of tend this way, the Jews believe that corruption set in on the third day of death, physical corruption. So the Lord stays in there long enough to start this corrupting process, or at least in their thinking, but he ends up bolting out of the grave instead. Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. So if sin is the sting of death, and if you remove sin, death no longer has a sting. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, drum roll please, through our Lord Jesus Christ. That last part's very important. But Paul also says this. Listen to this one. This is Colossians 2.15. The requirements that were against us which were contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, 
having nailed it to the cross. Here's verse 15 of Colossians 2. Are you ready? Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, in his cross, in his death. That somehow, some way, the death of Christ was a triumph over principalities and powers. Why? Or how? The cross is viewed as triumph over satanic beings. How can it be a triumph over when, in fact, our Lord died, which doesn't look to me like a triumphal way of conquering satanic beings? Now, here's my answer to that. In his death for us, this happened first. The divine justice against us was satisfied. He who knew no sin became sin for us. His death was a penalty for our sin. You can't see that happening. God has to tell us this is what's happening. Second, the requirement of the law was upheld perfectly by him. He gave himself unto death. He didn't give in to the satanic onslaughts which he experienced in his soul. He did experience satanic onslaughts. He never gave in to them. These onslaughts were aimed at getting our Lord to sin. What the devil did with the first Adam, he tried to do with the last Adam. And then we have these odd words from Hebrews chapter 2. Let me just read them. Inasmuch, this is Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Listen to these words. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, uh, both capitalized, likewise, shared in the same flesh and blood, very God yet very man, that through death, oh, here's death as a cause of something, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. What in the world does that mean? I thought death was... Uh, was was threatened by not the devil, but God as a penal infliction of divine justice, assuming that some, somebody sinned. What does Paul mean here by saying that he might destroy him, vanquish, who had the power of death, that is the devil? This has to be not Whatever this is, it's not good, right? Because the devil has no good bones in him, even though he doesn't have bones. But you know what I mean by that. It has to be something like this. He, you mean, just like he wielded the law of God toward Eve and duped her and did damage to her, so he takes... This is a figure of speech, by the way. Death like a sword, and he wields it, and he causes people to be bound in fear and to do weird things because they're so scared of dying. Something like that. I, I think that's what it means. And I read all the great best commentaries on Hebrews, and it's hard to get an answer to this question, but... Uh, I think that's what the good guy, the best one said. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Sometimes 
People hit the bottle. Sometimes, this is a 70s kid, people hit the bong to try to ease the pain of the fact that we're all corroding. And we're going, remember I've talked about how the Hollywood ladies do it, probably the men too. They cut a hole in the back of the neck and they stretch their skin and stuff it in there and then surgically put some sort of weird zipper in the back of their head and they zip up all the age so they look young again so they don't have to fear what's coming around the mountain for everybody who all their lifetime were subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, that is, the incarnate Son of God. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, that is, to alleviate the wrath of God, to take the wrath of God upon himself. Um, You could look at it this way, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Heaven has an arrow pointing right at your soul because you're a guilty sinner. Either you get the arrow thrust through your soul, which pins you into the darkest recesses of hell, ultimately, or somebody else does for you. I'll take the somebody else for me. That's what he does. To make propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted but never succumbing to it. He is able to aid those who are tempted. Surely the devil wielded death like a sword, seeking to cause fear unto sin to be born in our Lord's soul. But he never gave in. He kept entrusting himself to God, as Peter said. He suffered and was tempted, but never yielded. He triumphs through obedience, something the first Adam failed to do. I'm going to actually die as a victim and win by virtue of my death. You're not going to do with death what you do with everybody else. My death is actually the death of death as far as the condemning power of death, the sting of death. I've come down to your turf. I've assumed the nature that you first duped. I'm going to beat you as a humble servant who takes the lashes both from men and from the divine justice. It's the best I can do to explain how. There's more. I got some more how uh, for part two of this sermon. One of the most important catechism questions was, has God provided a way to deal with our guilt and the sin that brings it on? And the answer is yes, with a qualification, but only in one way. Remember that? What is the one and only way? The satisfaction of Christ. Christ's work on the earth Both his passive and his active obedience satisfy the justice of God and ironically demolishes the devil at the same time. And if you're 
united to this Christ through faith. Your soiled, sinful hands have gone out believing the gospel, receiving its message. Then you have all the benefits of Christ and this slow but sure vanquishing of the subjection of the devil uh, and his wily suggestions that from time to time come even to Christians. He's like a roaring lion on a chain, by the way seeking whom he may devour, even that is going to come to an end. It's, it's going to have a terminus. And it's all on the judgment day when, you know, if that happened, then why should I let you into heaven? There's only one answer, Jesus, him. Why? His satisfaction. And you won't, this isn't going to happen, by the way, but <clears throat> if it did happen, You're not going to hear a voice, what in the world is the satisfaction of Christ? Heaven understands the mechanics, the how of the cause and the effect relationship between the death of Christ and the demolition of the devil. Ours is to believe the gospel in order that we might be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We ask that you would burn it into our hearts, heads and hearts. Make it to affect, to alter, to change the way we live. For some, that means to uh, give ourselves to him again in loving, thankful praise for the satisfaction he provided. For others, it means to believe upon him for the first time and then to live a life seeking to do what he says. Bless your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.